Hello captives and captive friends and welcome to episode 37 of the Global Captive Podcast supported by Legacy Specialist R&Q and hosted by me, Richard Kutcher. If you are a fan of the pod and simply listen on the website or rely on seeing new episodes promoted on our LinkedIn page, then please don't forget that the easiest way to keep up to date with our latest releases is to subscribe on any podcast app of your choice. You can follow us on SoundCloud or Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Overcast, CastBox or any other of the great podcast apps available. It is free to do so and every episode will be downloaded straight to your device. Well, on with the pod and I am very happy to say I am joined by our guest co-host today from Dublin, Ireland in the form of Derek Bridgman, a managing director within the largest independent captive manager in the world, strategic risk solutions and risk consulting practice leader for SRS Europe. Derek, welcome to the pod. Thanks very much, Richard. Delighted to be here. Fantastic. Good to have you on. We've been discussing having you on for a few months now, so it's good to have you here. Um, We have loads to talk to you about today, including SRS's own European plans. But first, I'm going to highlight everything else coming up in the next 30 minutes or so. Our captive owner interview is with Andrew Bailey, a Scotsman, in fact, who has been based in the United States for many years now and is Program Director for Global Insurance at AES Corporation, a Fortune 500 utilities company with a Vermont with a Vermont Pure Captive. But Derek, uh, you joined SRS in May v- this year from Marsh. Certainly a strange time to be joining a new company, very much in the middle of our, our lockdowns here in, in UK and Ireland and, and Europe. Tell us a little bit about your role there and, and what you've been up to these past uh, three months. Yeah, well, as you say, sort of a strange time uh, to be to be joining first day working from home and not getting to, to meet people. But yeah, no, exciting time. Um as you say, I'm relatively new to, to SRS or to three months in, I suppose, my, my role. I, I, I Prior to this, I was, I, as you say, I was with Marsh. It was 14 years, both in sort of captive management in Dublin and then uh, latter uh, part of the career was, was more in consulting, so solvency too. And then I led the consulting practice for international. I suppose the role with SRS is is somewhat similar in that I, I as you say, I lead the the risk consulting. So so we we really do see this as a you know a way of of growing within Europe. I suppose SRS as as you know has been very much US and the islands focused o- o- up to now, and and then. I suppose the the expansion, the European expansion, really began in 2017 with the establishment of of the the sort of branch network through primarily through the EU onshore domiciles. So, as as you can imagine, sort of a painstaking task dealing with regulators and getting licenses in in place. So, so really from sort of the start of this year, late last year, really ready to go from a from a management perspective. But my role is is really to grow the the consulting. The consulting business so so building building along nicely building a nice team um andy hume has, has has joined relatively new again director of underwriting within within srs neil campbell obviously and and then of late paul owens as well to, to sort of support the initiative so going, going really well at, at the moment I suppose the 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 key difference for being really is 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 sort of the independent nature of SRS. I would find you know we are 
kind of captive consultants and captive managers, which which I suppose differs from sort of the, the broker led captive houses. Um, whereas all we do really is is captive. So that was that was attractive in, in terms of really building the team and, and, and growing it that way. It's certainly busy times, and it's, I think it's great to have have you on board uh, in, in in a relatively new venture such as this in terms of SRS in Europe. So you mentioned a few of the hires there, uh, some some really good names, names that I know well in terms of uh, Paul Owens, Neil Campbell, and Andy Holm. Uh, really good people, kind of across uh, breadth of expertise and experience as well. It, it was announced a few weeks ago that uh, that Brian Collins has joined as as your man in Luxembourg. I know Brian from his time as the internal captive manager for. Randstad's insurance and reinsurance captures in the jurisdiction, and he is a former colleague of yours as well. What does uh, this hire in in, uh, in Luxembourg give SRS, and and why do you think uh, it's important to have a presence there? Yeah, well, I think I think Luxembourg has always been a you know a, if not the the most popular or one of the most popular EU onshore domiciles, and I think that that probably will continue. It's been a go to domicile for for a lot of the the the, the European parented captives. We see that I suppose continuing. Um, I think what Brian gives us is is really the the established experience there. Obviously, I know Brian from from my my Marsh days, so he, he's a wealth of experience, and I think his contacts there I think will 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 really help it um, grow and evolve over time. So that, that's Luxembourg, which seems like a, a pretty important piece. You've also been building up a presence in, in both Malta and Dublin, probably viewed alongside Luxembourg as the, the premier EU captive domiciles. Um, kind of what, what's been developing in those jurisdictions uh, over the last few months? Sure, absolutely. So uh, as you say, Malta, Malta and Dublin we see as a sort of key premier domiciles and, and, and one which we, we intend to, to staff up. I, I suppose the, the key announcements are really Melissa Hancock is is relocating from our Vermont office as managing director and she will lead the, the captive uh, management operations um, from Malta. Um, Yasmin Yane will join from Marsh. She's currently with uh, Marsh in Dublin and will relocate to her office in Malta. As, and in addition to to this, Emily Cadby has joined from Willis Towers Watson, and will assist um, myself on the on the consulting initiative. So really excited, delighted with those with those hires, and I think they 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 will help us continue to grow through 2020 and 2021. Yeah, certainly lots of it's lots of new names as well. Um, and Malta, Malta's on my list actually this year. Obviously, not being able to get out of the country very often at the moment or, or at all. Uh, Malta and Guernsey, the two places I'm eyeing up as a potentially <laughs> potentially way to escape England if they'll if they'll have me in there because I can do some interesting captive recordings while I'm over there. In terms of the European region, then just lastly, if you want to serve the UK market in particular, the missing part of the jigsaw is really going to be Guernsey. Obviously, Isle of Man is, is a good option as well for UK corporates. But in terms of Guernsey, do, do you have your eyes on that and, and how might you go about uh, putting a presence there? Yeah, Guernsey is an interesting one. Obviously, to, to date, the, 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 the target has really been sort of establishing presence in the EU onshore domiciles. But I think we, we, with more of a focus now, I think it needs to evolve to really give that, that offshore option. As you say, it's been a go-to place for the, for the UK uh, UK corporates historically, and I think you know, in a lot of the work we would do in, in sort of feasibility work as well, giving clients that option between on EU onshore and offshore, I think is important. Solvency too, and the regulation and capitalization that goes with it is not for everyone, and I think that's evident. And I think really Guernsey has has really grown. I think of late in becoming a sort of a, a go to place for for perhaps accessing the likes of the ILS. And I think of of late, I uh, you know, we understand that. 
they've sort of simplified the application process for for MGAs and things like that. So really kind of proactive uh, and, and, and proportionate regulator and the discussions we've had to date have, have, have been very encouraging. So I think that's part of the part of the, the, the jigsaw and, and we'll come into play really to sort of establish ourselves there with a, with a management presence to go forward in, through 2021. Great. Well, one to look out for. I'll certainly be keeping an eye on the on licenses and, and things that might be issued to give me a clue of what's going on. So uh, I'll keep an eye on that, Derek. But plenty more from, from Derek in the second half of the episode on how SRS will look to work with independent brokers, new formation activity, and captive owners taking a fresh look at their own approach to how they use their captives. But now I am pleased to introduce Andrew Bailey, Program Director for Global Insurance at AES Corporation. Andrew is a long-term friend of mine and is always generous with his insight and approach to captive insurance. He began by telling us a little bit about the profile of AES as an organization. AES is a power generator and distributor uh, who are kind of generating electricity from a number of different fuel sources. Uh, We currently are operating in about 15 countries around the world predominantly North, South and Central America. Uh, Historically, we were much broader than that. We were in about 35 countries around the world, but have concentrated now on the Americas. Most of our generation is actually contracted generation. So we have long-term contracts with off-takers. And so our business is fairly stable in terms of the demand uh, for electricity. And then uh, that is circulated into the grids from that point. In terms of the fuel mix, historically, we were very much uh, focused on coal and gas. With the kind of the development of the environmental uh, requirements and just good social responsibility, that profile is now shifting away from coal. And by the end of this year, will be less than 30% coal, uh, a good amount of gas, uh, hydro, and then a big focus on expanding into renewables, whether that be solar wind or battery or combinations of those renewable energies as well. Really interesting. And I guess that will probably, you know, th- that kind of uh, evolution to different power supplies obviously will be changing your 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 risk profile, I'd imagine. You, you've been in your position at AES since 2006, I believe. Andrew, what role does uh, the captive, I know it's a Vermont captive, what role does the, the captive play in your insurance program? And, and how has that captive's role evolved over time? If you think about the industry that we're in, really we are a a capital intensive industry. Uh, We're building very large uh, power stations. So really one of our largest exposures is around our physical assets and protecting those and the revenues that come from that. If you think about building a large coal or gas plant, we're maybe going to spend between $500 million and a billion dollars on building that facility. It will be secure. It will have a fence around it. We don't have a lot of people required to run it. Therefore, our captive was put in place really to kind of help us with the insurance program and spend around the physical assets and the kind of revenue protection around that. That's something that has continued to be our main focus overall that period. And we haven't really seen a lot of kind of new uh, activities being brought into the captive because our big premium spend is, is really kind of related to the property damage. 
I, I mentioned that a number of our assets uh, are North, South and Central America. And for that reason, we have quite a large diversity of natural hazard risk as well, whether it's California earthquake, uh, Gulf of Mexico storm, Caribbean storm, Chile earthquake. And for that reason, we use the captive to provide cover for those perils and then access the reinsurance market uh, for protection for that above the levels that we want to retain. And then how important, you mentioned, of course, you've got uh, uh, numerous countries that you operate in. So I presume you probably make use of international insurance programs. How, how much of a role does the captive play in those in those international programs? Our property program is a true international program. And really, every asset that we have around the world in the mainstream sort of kind of areas is part of our program, perhaps other than India, uh, for regulatory reasons. Uh, for some of our smaller countries, Covers whether it's the uh, the benefits covers, uh, whether it's the casualty covers or marine. A lot of those are actually placed in local markets uh, or on standalone insurance programs uh, with risk transfer markets because we really don't have the premium volume in those to justify actually the full mechanism of fronting and bringing those back to the captive. Obviously, as the insurance market is evolving at the moment, the opportunity to bring more of those lines to the captive and make the numbers work uh, so that we can cover our attritional and overheads uh, for that and also keep enough premium to cover the claims exposure. We're certainly looking at bringing more lines into the captive rather than buying them in the risk transfer market because previously it was more efficient for us to transfer that risk with insurance pricing going Going up, limits being reduced, and other terms being more uh, restrictive, we are looking for opportunities to actually take risk ourselves rather than transfer those premiums into the market. Yeah, interesting, Andrew. That, that kind of preempts my next question. Actually, is on on the hardening market. Obviously, it's been eighteen months to two years now. The market has been hardening, and I don't think with the pandemic we're gonna we're gonna see that ease off anytime soon. Have you have you already started using the captive differently, or or as you say, are you just starting to look at that now and think do we need to be adding more attention uh, into the captive? We're certainly looking at that uh, more seriously this year for our next renewal, which is for January. We were also dealing with some claims uh, experience on our property program from the last couple of years. We had some fairly big claims. Therefore, the reinsurance pricing was probably reflecting that claims history as well as the uh, the changes in the market. So really, we want to kind of see the pricing kind of normalize uh, away from that kind of claims loading. And then we'll see what the, the opportunities are. We certainly are thinking of uh, taking a substantially increased retention in the captive if the numbers actually work out for us. But like any other underwriter out there, I want to make sure that the numbers work and that it's a good decision for me uh, from an underwriting perspective. And that I'm not just simply uh, chasing the kind of the premium for the sake of actually growing the book that we bring into the captive. Andrew, it's obviously your, your AIG underwriter background there shining through, <laughs> <laughs> not just not just chasing that premium. Um, just lastly, then, uh, Andrew, you touched a moment ago on you know, considering um, you know what other lines might be necessary to bring into the captive in this market. Uh, first of all, can you 
tell me which lines they might particularly be and also what is the process that you go through internally to decide in which lines should be going to the captive or not? I, I would say that as, as we run the captive, we take our responsibility as an underwriter seriously. Uh, we're not just saying, well, it's risk retention and we'll just kind of hold the risk. We're looking for an adequate premium. So therefore, our underwriting process around that is robust and I think would be comparable to what other markets would do. One of the advantages of the captive is obviously our expense ratio is going to be lower than a traditional insurance market. So if I can maintain an expense ratio of maybe 10 points, whereas the traditional market is looking to make 25 or 30, then that should give me an opportunity to provide premiums uh, that I can then run at a profitable level, even with the volatility that I may have in results. One of the important things that we need to consider as well is a lot of the businesses that we insure are partner businesses rather than being 100% subsidiaries. So we need to be able to demonstrate that the premiums that we charge are fair market rate premiums and that we can justify the premium that we charge and it's neither subsidized by being too low or too high. So for many of those reasons, really our our underwriting process would be equivalent uh, to what we would see from the insurers who we may be competing with. But ultimately, the advantage we may have ultimately is that that we have that lower uh, expense cost. And also, if it goes well for us, then we have the opportunity to keep uh, any margin that we can generate. Uh, Whereas otherwise, if we're transferring risk into the market, If we have a claims-free year, that money is gone and it's sitting on the balance sheet uh, of the insurers to which it was paid. Paul, they say there's more than one way to skin a cat, and I believe that's also true of offloading legacy liabilities. Yes, Richard, it is. You don't need to sell or dispose of your captive to release capital back to the parent or indeed to recycle it for future use in the captive. So what are the different options? Well, you can execute a lost portfolio transfer, which is a reinsurance structure, undertake an insurance business transfer, enter into novation or a deductible reimbursement policy. There's a whole range of solutions. And R&Q has experience in all of these types of transactions. Indeed, Richard, that's right. R&Q has completed over 70 legacy transactions with captive insurers and other self-insurance vehicles in traditional offshore jurisdictions, as well as those in the European Union and across the US. For the second year, R&Q is the headline partner for the Global Captive Podcast for 2020. You can find more information and contact details for their experts on globalcaptivepodcast.com. If you have legacy, you should contact R&Q. So, Derek, obviously leaving a broker such as Marsh with all the natural distribution channels that 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 brings, I guess one of the key areas to sort out in Europe for SRS is to make sure you've got those kind of multiple avenues that can produce business for you uh, as well as your own uh, networks. There are a couple of particularly large brokers over here without their own captive management operations. The one that springs to mind for me immediately are, are McGill and Lockton, although I'm sure there are others as well, as well as several smaller brokers who, who may work with clients of a size that could be suitable for captives, particularly in this market. So I guess the question is, what is the strategy with regards to other independent brokers? Are you already engaging with the likes of, of McGill and Lockton? And, and how do you see those relationships developing? Yeah, I think it's a valid point, and it's probably one of the areas I suppose you know I, I would have struggled struggled with to kind of get in get my head 
get my head in the right frame of mind initially in terms of moving over from Marsh, it's the devil you know in terms of the, the majority of our inquiries would have come through the Marsh broking network. I think looking at, at the, the approach with SRS is, we, you know, we are conscious of our independency, but I see that as a great, we see that as a great fit for the independent brokers who are being challenged by, by their clients now really to, to bring options and, and bring value. Um, and part of that might be evaluating does a captive does a captive make sense? They don't have a captive consulting or captive management capabilities. So again, we see it we see it as a nice fit. So that's something that SRS have done quite a lot in the US in terms of they they've worked with the, the, some of the, the broker firms you mentioned in terms of understanding does a captive make sense? Is there is there value? Is there potential value? And, and is it worthwhile looking? And I think I, I think that's certainly something we will continue. Uh, on the on this side of the pond. So in terms of new formations, then we obviously uh, are in a hard market now being two years, we talk about it all the time on the podcast, a little bit sticker talking about the hard market, to be honest, at the moment, but uh, it's a reality and it does create more interest and noise around captives. In terms of interest in, in new formations in, in, in the European region, where particularly are you seeing interest uh, in, in new captive formations? Yeah, I think I, I agree with you. It seems to be the, the the same sort of pain points that that companies seem to be encountering. The the captive conversations are, are really been driven by pain in the market. Really, risks becoming sort of uninsurable or or or, or more difficult to place. Um, and I think that's driving, that's pushing along the the, the captive uh, conversation. I think the risks you've probably heard a number of times are, are, are probably more around the sort of financial lines, the likes of, of DNO, but also I, I would say the property and casualty as well. There's, there's been significant sort of rate increases and, and deductible levels going higher. I think in addition to that, previously we would have had discussions with, you know, within Marsh, we'd have discussions with brokers and reinsurance brokers to understand whether a captive sort of gives you that benefit of accessing additional capacity. And I think often case we'd explore it and, and, and it probably wasn't there. But I think as the market hardens or harshens, we are seeing additional options or, or ability to sort of use a captive or a sale to access capacity within the commercial reinsurance market. I think the conversations we're having with brokers are, I think the key point we're, we're trying to get across is if it's uninsurable or if it's not available in the, in the existing market, I think it's it's thinking differently. I think it's it's, it's thinking to a non-traditional placement. And I think that's that's maybe where the question comes up with, is there, is there an opportunity to participate in the risk or perhaps mutualize the risk um, at, at higher lay, layers? And I think things like parametric triggers, which are, you, you know, going back a few years, we're probably seeing probably less often in the market. We're starting to see more and more of them. So I think when you when you ask the question, well, what's the alternative? And you see this with the likes of Tesla and Elon Musk, you know, retaining the DNO, simply just retaining it. I think the logical next question is, could, could that be retained within a sort of formalized and regulated vehicle, such as a captive? But I think when you when you ask the question, what's the alternative? The, oftentimes, the alternative is is potentially no cover. I think then that drives the that that has the potential to drive the captive conversation. Yeah, you mentioned a few, a few things that pricked my ears up there. One was uh, the parametric in, insurance approach, and I'll just uh, put a little shame, shameless plug in for a previous GCP short we did with Axa Excel on exactly that topic and how they can be used and how they are already being used for captives. That was released around May time, I believe. So do check that out uh, if you're interested. And then also um, on the DNO topic, I mean, I mean, it's been well known. I think DNO is certainly the most distressed line of business at the moment in this market. Uh, there's some upcoming data. Coming 
coming out from AMIC I've had a glimpse of, and I'll just say that a significant proportion of our members have reported more than 400% increases in their DNO this year uh, at, at renewal stage, which is obviously an eye-watering figure. And we are increasingly hearing, uh, I heard obviously just from yourself and from others about seeing more DNO in captives. I think we're certainly seeing more side B and C DNO going into captives already. And I think people are looking to get, as you mentioned, Tesla, looking to get a bit more creative with the side A side. So I think it's certainly one to watch out for. And as we see the kind of captive benchmarking reports released over the next couple of years, I'm sure we'll be seeing an uptick on the DNO side. On, on the captive formations, uh, Derek, just one more question on that. Is there, you know, the Europe, the UK market and European market, people have thought for a while it's almost been saturated in terms of most people that should have a captive probably do already have a captive. Do you, do you think that's right? Or are you seeing inquiries come from companies that you may have been surprised to learn they didn't already have a captive in place? Yeah, I think I think one 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 thing to point out is companies may have looked at this previously. So some of the the, the groups in in the likes of Germany, Germany would be a market. There are some huge captives, but there's there's a lot of premium spend in, in the likes of Germany, and they would have looked at this previously and probably felt they weren't they weren't big enough for a captive or a sell. So I think with rates and and deductible levels being pushed pushed higher, I think that's that's pushing that sort of mid tier company into to maybe to, to have the critical mass to at least evaluate a, a captive and sell. And I think that the sell is an area we do see, we do see increasing interest because really it just does allow the company to sort of start off smaller and grow and evolve perhaps to, to a wholly owned captive as well. So um, just lastly, then, in terms of the other area, of course, there's lots of activity at the moment. And I, again, I hear this often through my AMIC uh, contacts, but also through the captive owners I interview on the podcast is, you know, existing captive owners taking a fresh look at their captive's operation, their strategy, the kind of level of risk they're retaining, the types of lines they're writing, how they're structured. What do you think is, is driving uh, that interest? And, and are you seeing that yourself as obviously part of your role is the, the kind of consulting side? Are you seeing lots of discussions around that area? Yeah, I think I think it's a valid point, and it's something we you nearly we've nearly separated the the consulting into two buckets. One obviously is for is for clients who don't have captives, or maybe do who do have captives who just haven't used them. But other other clients are, are perhaps those larger companies whereby they've had similar sort of structures through the soft market because they've 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 had available capacity, so they've had pretty static kind of captive programs. I think now they're in, they're encountering difficulties or challenges in the market. So so really looking at that from a, a kind of a new viewpoint um, I, I think is important so are the limits that they're purchasing appropriate we've seen a lot of companies whereby they've had traditional single placement and I think that's where the likes of Neil is, is Neil Campbell is hugely beneficial to bring that structured reinsurance um, components so so potentially looking at multi-line or cross-class aggregate type uh, placements to, to to enhance I suppose the the captive utilization I think that that's certainly an area which, which we see we do see potential for, I suppose, to differ or to compare this side of the pond again to, to the US, there's, there's, there's a lot of self-managed companies in, in, in Europe who obviously take in the day-to-day, -day, they, they want to have control and ownership over the day-to-day the -day accounting function, but are more willing then to perhaps outsource the consulting piece and, and take a look at that. And I think that, you know, we are seeing a lot, a lot of interest in that. So I think that's hopefully an area that will continue to grow. Well, that is all we have time for in GCP 37. If you are new to the Global Captive Podcast and you like what you have heard, then please do be sure to check out our back catalogue. 
globalcaptivepodcast.com has our full episode archive as well as photos and biographies of more than 100 guests from the past 18 months. Thank you to Andrew Bailey for joining me this time and thank you as well to Derek Bridgman. Cheers for coming on to the pod. Thanks very much, Richard. Yeah, delighted to be on. It's a really great initiative. Stay safe, stay well, and see you next time, captives. <laughs>